Our text is our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah chapter 55, a wonderful, powerful promise from God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And as I said, that's a powerful promise. Uh, but there is a, a little bit of a regulator, I guess, uh, in some ways, on the, uh, the power that it brings. If you don't understand or know, well, what is God's purpose? What is the thing for which he sent it? God's word will accomplish it. I guess that's good. I hope it's good. What is it that it's going to do? Well, that's our focus in uh, today's message is to uh, take this wonderful, powerful promise of God that his word will accomplish its purpose. It will accomplish what he intends and dig into that and say, well, what is his purpose? What is his intent? And see just how good that is for us. So in traditional Lutheran theology, uh, we talk a lot about this, actually, uh, in a familiar way of identifying God's purpose in his word as twofold, law and gospel. And if you're a veteran of many Bible studies, you may at this point be tempted to check out, oh, this is the difference between law and gospel. I've heard that a lot, Pastor, and I know you have, uh, but it's one of those things that is very important to continue hearing no matter how many times you've heard it before. Just like professional ball players never stop practicing throwing and catching. The most basic thing there is, every, time, every day they get together and practice throwing and catching more. Stuff that any 10-year-old mostly can, can do. Because you can never get too good at it. Uh, and it's a true of our, our walk of Christianity as we understand uh, God's word and how it impacts us and how he intends it to impact on us. Uh, understanding his intent and purpose in uh, the law and the gospel is something that Martin Luther said is the, the foundation of a good theologian. That anyone who can properly distinguish law and gospel is a true theologian who needs nobody to teach him. And so uh, we continue to learn that uh, because uh, it, it's not just basic, it's a fundamental. And uh, to keep the fun in fundamentals, uh, we're going to intersperse uh, the sermon hymn, actually two sermon hymns, into the sermon. It's Sermon the Musical. Uh, and uh, fortunately for you, I'm not going to be singing. Uh, we'll all be uh, singing it uh, together. Uh, the uh, pair of hymns by Matthias Loya, uh, American Lutheran uh, pastor and theologian from uh, 200, 150 years ago, who wrote this pair of hymns about the law and the gospel and their impact on us.
And so let's go ahead and get started. Re, uh, sing together the first two verses of the law of God is good and wise. Again, if this is familiar territory uh, for you, probably recognized in those uh, verses what we typically call from the catechism the second use of the law, the mirror, uh, as it's sometimes referred to. The law shows us our sinfulness and our need for a, uh, a savior, for salvation. Uh, the uh, him by loy uh, makes it the first uh, use of the law, the first purpose God has for his word. Uh, I think very appropriately uh, that uh, really before anything else can happen in our interaction with God, don't we first have to understand that we're not God? We have to assume our proper place and relationship to God uh, to be able to uh, process whatever God has for us, uh, to recognize that God is speaking to us from a position of authority as creator, and we are under him as his creatures and under his law. And to take it a step further then, under his just judgment because of our failure to keep the law. Again, if we're not recognizing our, our status by hearing God as uh, the standard, the one who sets the standard, uh, we're going to set ourselves up in that place. Rene Descartes, the great philosopher, started his whole foundation of logic on the premise, I think, therefore I am. Well, if that's your starting place, your axiom, I am, puts you in the position of God. That's literally the name God gave himself from the burning bush to Moses. I am. God is the I am, not me. And I need to start with, he is rather than I am, to get anywhere. Following in on that, then, is recognizing that I am not what he is. God is perfect, and I am not. The, the mirror analogy of showing us our sin is a good one, 
Uh, but another one that's less frequently used and I think, I think may be better in some ways is to call the second use of the law the uh, hammer uh, that crushes our self-righteousness. Because that's really the, to, to put a, a, a precise definition on it, that's the real heart of the point. A lot of people struggle with the second use of the law because it sounds like shame talk. It, talk, it seems like it's contrary to self-esteem or self-confidence, that it's uh, almost abusive. Uh, and we counter that by saying the point isn't just to show us our sins so that we can be ashamed and hate ourselves. The point is not to crush self-confidence, but to crush self-righteousness. Self-confidence is a good thing. If you can run marathons, you have a right in in a very appropriate role. Being confident, you can run marathons. But if you're walking around saying, well, I'm confident, I know I'm a valuable person because I'm a five-time NBA All-Star. Well, maybe you need to be checked on that. And put your confidence in something that's actually true. Uh, That self-righteousness is not true and needs to be crushed so that we can put our confidence in something that is true, something that will actually give us a, a value that won't be destroyed when reality checks hit us smack in the face. self righteousness needs to be crushed also because it is kind of our default setting that uh, we are naturally self-centered we're the the center of our own universes and we tend to evaluate things by our own standard and justify ourselves any way we can even in the church Uh, Throughout history, one of the things that eventually led to the Reformation uh, was uh, the false teaching of the scholastic theologians in the Middle Ages around the year 1000 to 1200, guys like Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas, who are arguing, do your best and God will be happy with you. You, God will be pleased and God will be satisfied. Do your best. And if you do your best for God, well, then God's obligated to do his best for you and give you eternal life. Well, the logic of that doesn't follow for a variety of reasons because, well, God giving you way more than you give him isn't exactly necessarily fairness. And also the fact that God isn't obligated to do anything, uh, that human rules of justice and fairness don't apply between the creation and the creator. The creator can do whatever he wants towards his creation. He's under no obligation by definition of that relationship. A a painter isn't obligated to, uh, that uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, wasn't obligated uh, to give Mona Lisa a smile. He could have made her frown. Uh, That there's no obligation between, from creator to creation. But also, we just specifically see in God's word uh, that his standard is perfection. And imperfection is not perfection and can't be brought up to perfection. Well, we, we 
try to justify ourselves by saying, well, I did my best. That's not perfection. We try to justify ourselves by saying, well, I'll make up for my bad stuff by doing more good stuff. Well, can you do, go over and above perfection to make up for the imperfection? No, perfection is as good as it gets. So you can't do more than perfection to make up for the less than perfection. Uh, the best example of it, to, to put it in concrete terms, is Adam and Eve. Uh, that if we could make up for our sins or fix our own mistakes before God, the whole story of the Bible would, uh, would have been changed fundamentally. When Adam and Eve uh, eat the forbidden fruit and, and uh, suffer the consequences, God didn't come down and say, well, just say a few Hail Marys, light a few candles, and it'll all be good. Help a little old lady across the street, and that'll even it out. They couldn't fix their mistake. That was the whole problem. Adam and Eve sinned one time, one mistake, and that was it. The world was imperfect, and it couldn't be made perfect again except by the intervention of someone who is perfect, Jesus coming to earth and living a perfect life. We're no better than Adam and Eve. That Adam and Eve couldn't fix their mistake and restore the Garden of Eden the next day. Neither can we fix our mistakes and restore ourselves to perfection. And so this fundamental reality needs to be impressed on us uh, to realize uh, that we have no claim of righteousness on our own. There's no justification by which we can claim uh, a place before God, but only throw ourselves on his mercy uh, and seek salvation uh, from his righteousness, his perfection. And this is the, in many ways, like I said, the starting point uh, in how God's word impacts us and his purpose for us. Uh, to crush our self-righteousness uh, so that we would find ourselves in a position to actually listen to him and hear him as our God and uh, look to him for our salvation. And it continues on from them there, though, as his purpose for us unfolds. And we sing about that in the next two verses. In these verses, Loy addresses our familiar 
uh, first and third uses of the law, again, out of order, flipped uh, uh, third and first, uh, highlighting God's purpose in his word uh, to also affect the way we actually live our lives. Uh, one way or the other, you're by the, the fear of the threat of punishment to refrain from obviously wicked behavior, what we call the curb that restrains our sinfulness so that we don't go out robbing convenience stores uh, because we know uh, that if we do, we're going to get punished. Uh, And this affects even people who don't necessarily believe God's word because the threat uh, is at least scary enough to restrain uh, our natural wicked desires. But as those who help in Christ have found, and would in works of love abound, uh, we actually cherish this aspect of uh, God's word and the purpose uh, he has in giving it to us to show us what is good and right uh, and what pleases him and benefits us. This is a, a great blessing of God's word that we find even in the law is that it steers us away from what is bad and dangerous and towards what is good and healthy. Uh, This is why uh, David wrote Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible by far, uh, which is just an ongoing love poem to the law because God's law is good, his statutes are wise, his precepts are true, His principles and his laws and his rules are wonderful for, as he writes much more succinctly in Psalm just 19, uh, Lord, I love your law. Uh, By it, your servant is warned, and in keeping it, there is great reward. Uh, That God's uh, law, he speaks to us to warn us. Guys, adultery is bad. No matter how good the world says it is, it's not. It's bad. Don't get involved in all that. Keep marriage pure. And that will lead to a better life. And they say, hey, uh, forgiveness is good. The world may call it weak, uh, but it's good. It leads to peace and happiness. God has actually given us the user manual. It's an open book test. Life is. Crack open the book. Find the answers there. God gives you the answers. That's the blessing we have. And we often neglect it. If you're like me, you, you know, you, you, buy stuff that needs some assembly required, and you think, oh, I don't need the directions. I can put it together, and then it doesn't work right. We do the same thing with our lives. We say, oh, I can figure it out. I I, I know the basic idea what it's supposed to look like. And we don't look in our Bibles. We don't trust God's guidance. And then we find ourselves with broken, messed up situations saying, and what does it say in here again? Uh, Because we need God's guidance. Why would we try and live without it? That's not to say, again, that uh, it's a a foolproof, infallible recipe for health, wealth, and prosperity. 
Uh, that if you read your Bible and do what it says, you're going to be a millionaire and have six cars and a vacation home and uh, who knows where. Uh, nobody ever followed God's law better than Jesus, and he was murdered in his early 30s. Uh, so there's not always the material reward that earthly people look for, of course. But it is true that in general, it, it's a happier, healthier way to live in accordance with God's law, even in this life. And it certainly bears ongoing rewards in the life to come. And God gives us uh, the truth about what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is healthy and what is unhealthy. And that is a part of his purpose in speaking to us, is to guide us to what is good, that we may benefit from it and be a benefit to others through it. But the law, even with these benefits, can only take us so far as well. And we sing about that in the next two verses. Lex semper accusat. It's the uh, old, or old Latin uh, theological uh, motto that means the law always accuses. That the law is good, but we are not in and of ourselves. And as such, the law has no power to justify. The law cannot get us to heaven uh, and cannot earn us salvation. No matter uh, how hard we try or good we do, ultimately we will fall short of perfection. And the law, therefore, always stands as an accuser if it doesn't point us to the one who redeems us from our failures, the perfect one uh, who has atoned for our imperfections. It points us to Jesus. This isn't just a Lutheran doctrine, of course, because Lutheran doctrine comes from Scripture, and uh, Luther drew this from the Apostle Paul, who wrote that the uh, law is like a school teacher uh, to uh, bring us up, to uh, teach us to look to Christ. Uh, that we would find in him the fulfillment of the law and the true source of self-confidence, a confidence that is not in ourselves, uh, but in Christ. And that makes us, therefore, in ourselves uh, valuable uh, because of his love for us. Well, the ultimate purpose uh, of uh, God's word is to tell us his 
ultimate purpose, which is for our good. That he doesn't desire the death of the sinner. That he is not a harsh, vindictive judge. But that he is a loving father, a merciful savior who has planned our redemption and has accomplished it uh, through Christ's sacrifice. This is why C.F.W. Walther, the founding father of the LCMS, uh, made such a point at the beginning of the LCMS to start it on solid ground with his frequent assertion that the gospel must predominate. That while law and gospel live in a a harmony and a balance, uh, the gospel is the chief core substance of God's purpose for us. That God's central purpose is not to lead us to the law, to teach us what we must do, uh, but to lead us through the law to the gospel, to teach us what he has done for us, uh, who he is as our father. And we sing about that in the gospel shows the father's grace. Have you ever wondered why there's three uses of the law, the curb, the mirror, the guide, and not three uses of the gospel, or two uses of the gospel, or five uses of the gospel? Uh, The implication we may get from that is that, well, there's just one use for the gospel, but actually it's the opposite. There's too many uses of the gospel to count. 
That's the whole thing about the gospel, why we sang all six verses uh, of it here. Because if you get into subdividing it, it's not going to be two or three or four or five, but a jillion. Uh, It's going to be infinity. Because that's what the gospel is. It's everything. It's everything an infinite God has to give you, which is everything. It's eternal life forever. All the blessings of eternal life, which cannot be counted, which cannot be numbered. The gospel is everything. That God gives us everything out of his fatherly goodness and grace. Because of his tender, loving mercy and compassion. And we can talk about justification like it does in verse 1 here. How God makes us right. Uh, puts us in, in where we're supposed to be. Uh, we could talk about atonement, as it uh, talks about in verse 2, how God reconciles us to him in a, a relationship, uh, being at one with God. We could talk about uh, freedom from guilt, or release and peace uh, as it, that are mentioned in verse 3. Uh, that wonderful peace of, of sins forgiven, that allows us to live uh, with a rest, uh, a peace uh, that we've never known. The, the shalom of the Old Testament, the Sabbath rest. Uh, it could talk about salvation, uh, as it does in uh, verse 4, a familiar theological term that we don't always connect with its literal meaning of uh, being saved, being rescued that we have enemies of sin, death, and the devil who would overpower us if we were left on our own, but from which God has rescued us so that we don't have to be afraid of sin, death, and the devil, so that we will not be overcome by their might. We talk about the the gladness and cheer, uh, as it does in verse 5, the joy of God's salvation of being filled to overflowing with that joy and rejoicing uh, that will last forever in heaven. And we could go on and on and on with terms like deliverance and redemption and new birth and so on and so on because the Bible talks in so many ways about what God has given us and what God has done for us out of his love because of his grace that all ultimately amounts to God has given us everything. And this is his great purpose uh, for us to know and believe and receive uh, what he desires us to have. Everything. An eternal relationship with all the blessings an infinite God has to give. That's the central purpose of God's proclamation to the world. That he saw the, uh, the world crumbling in decay and has intervened, proclaimed his truth to rescue it from that decay. And to bring it to the fullness of what he in his perfection intends it to be. Which is why Isaiah 55 
actually continues after this to, to specify uh, the direct intent of God in beautiful gospel terms. That my word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for what I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That's his purpose, a purpose which is so beautiful. All creation joins in a gospel choir of celebration as Isaiah describes it, that the mountains will burst into song and the trees will clap their hands. As all creation, which now groans uh, in the agony of childbirth, waiting for the children of God to be revealed, will on that day celebrate as all things come to the fullness of him who is all in all. As we have been given such a a great blessing uh, by God uh, to have his word which we can read in Scripture and hear proclaimed uh, from the teachers and preachers of His Word. Uh, We have the opportunity to uh, be transformed in beautiful, wonderful ways by the power which God guarantees His Word has. That's a blessing and a hope for us, both as we reflect on that word that we receive ourselves and as we share it to the world around us, trusting that it will accomplish in us and through us God's plan of salvation as he has promised. And may that peace that is beyond all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we await the day of his glorious return. Amen.